Can you join me in a word of prayer just so we can begin with our hearts aligned with what's about to happen here? Father, we pray that in the next few moments as we look into your word that you would change us, that you would encounter us. We pray that it would not be just an intellectual exercise, God, just looking at some verses, hear a guy talking, go home and do whatever. Uh, We want to be changed. We want to be transformed by you. So we ask that you would encounter us through your word. And um, we need your help. We need your grace for it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we talked about uh, the first murder, the first egregious sin that happened. And if you weren't here, you could probably still from the top of your head, think of that character from the Bible, Cain, who murdered his brother because his, his sacrifice was acceptable to God more than his was. And he hated that. God warned him, hey, sin is going to crouch at your door. It wants to pounce on you. It wants to take over. Don't give in to sin. He didn't listen to God. Sin took over, murders his brother. There's no precedent. It's not because he grew up watching violent cartoons. He just did it. Because sin is like that. It's invasive, infectious, and it continues to grow. And it takes over. It wants to master you. And Cain let it master him. Now we saw how beautiful God's mercy was, right? He didn't zap Cain with a bolt of lightning. In fact, he stepped in to try to warn him not to do it. He does it anyway. And even though he was warned not to do it and he did it anyway, God still comes alongside like a parent And he tells him, look, man, you're not going to be in blessing anymore. You have to go. And you're going to be wandering now. And then Cain has the audacity to complain about the punishment. This is too much for me to bear. Someone's going to find me and kill me out there. Once They're going to take vengeance, a revenge for me killing Abel. All their family members that want to take vengeance. And and God said, no, I'm going to put a mark on you to protect you. God protects him? And so when you think of an Old Testament God, we shouldn't think of an Old Testament God who's mindless, a mindless fury, rage, wakes up on the wrong side of the bed all the time, and then Jesus is the good cop. No, God is gracious from the beginning. But something unbelievable begins to unfold in that story. And it's kind of like when you're a parent and you give your child grace, and something clicks in their mind like, oh, I can get away with that now. They don't understand grace. They don't understand patience. They don't understand that it's not that you're allowing it. It's that you're just giving mercy. You have the right to exact punishment. You have the right to exact discipline, but you don't, you don't, you're not going to do it right now. This time, you're just going to warn them. You're going to tell them about it. Hopefully, they learn. But sometimes, maybe they don't learn. And it gets to a point where you have to realize that your child isn't understanding patience. Your child isn't understanding grace. Discipline is going to help them understand it. Or maximize that to uh, a maximum level between humanity and God. After Cain, the, the race just became more infected with sin. And Cain was just the beginning. Cain was child's play. Let's look at this. In, in Genesis chapter 6, what happened after God showed grace... God showed mercy. Um, I want you to actually uh, look at verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
Now, to take you back to Schoolhouse Rock for a second, okay, I mean, remember, you know, adverbs and adjectives, look how many are used here to describe, it wasn't just evil, but the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, not just a pocket here, a pocket there, the earth is flooded, the earth is infested with a great level of wickedness, it has reached maximum levels, and that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time, continually. It wasn't just their actions that were bad. Even the things they didn't get to do because they ran out of time, they would have done because they had the intention in their heart. It was that bad. There wasn't enough time to commit the evil that they wanted to do. There weren't enough opportunities to actualize the evil intent that was lying in their hearts. I want to show you just a couple examples of this. And this is important because sometimes we go, okay, so people are bad. You know, look at some of this. If you back up to chapter 4, for some of you, just a page backwards. Cain starts multiplying, right? He has a son, and his son has a son, and his son has a son. And you track the generations through. And the author is giving us the generations in chapter 4. And then it gets to this character, Lamech. And verse 18, to Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mehujil, and Mehujil fathered Methushil, and Methushil fathered Lamech. Now you just kind of fast forward through all those guys. Not because they're unimportant, but then he's going to pause and tell you, let me just tell you about this cat, Lamech. This is an exceptionally bad dude. In fact, I'm going to stop with the genealogy for a second, the author is basically telling us to show you just how bad things are going, how badly things are spiraling out of control. For instance, you remember a couple chapters ago when Adam found Eve? What does he say? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this union, this oneness with this woman, it's incredible. Eh, A couple generations later, marriage is already corrupted. Why? Because this guy Lamech takes it on himself to have two of them. Verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. We're not supposed to look at that and go, oh, right, back then there was multiple wives. No, this is how it started. And in fact, if you read through the Bible and you sometimes think, you know, God used to allow multiple wives, read all the headache that comes with all those situations, with Sarah and Hagar and all this stuff going on. Bad news. It didn't start with God's idea. It started with sin infesting humanity. And then with these two wives, he... He takes a moment to write a song, and he writes a song to brag to both of his wives how manly he is, how great he is, and here's what the song is about. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, we know it's a song because of the poetic nature of it when you're reading in the Hebrew, these are his wives' names, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So somebody hurt him, somebody, somebody hit his car, who knows what happened. He was offended by some youth, a kid, and I killed him. He's bragging. Now here's where the bragging goes to the next level. Do you remember that when Cain said someone's going to kill me if they find when they see me they're going to kill me because they know you're going to tell everybody i killed abel and when i'm out there wandering i'm unprotected 
And God said, no, I'm going to protect you. And if anyone kills you, I'll reap that vengeance upon them sevenfold. Talk about taking advantage of grace because the song ends like this. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, in other words, if God is going to step up for Cain sevenfold, he's going to step up for me 70 times sevenfold. In other words, Cain's sin was this much and he got protection. My sin is that much worse and you're going to protect me that much more. And then bragging to his two wives about it. Just a quick episode. And then back to the genealogy. It's just getting worse. And so, by the time you get to chapter 6, you get the sense that, boy, the author could pull out all kinds of details and, and Genesis could be, you know, 500 chapters long. But it suffice it to say that the wickedness was so great that every intention, every thought of the heart of man was only evil all the time. There were no good thoughts. There were no good intentions. Marriage was corrupt and violence had increased to maximum levels. And so God makes a decision. He says, my, I'm not gonna, my spirit's not going to contend with man. I'm not going to fight with man, wrestle with him forever. No, I'm drawing a line in the sand. And it says in verse 6, The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. Now when you read that, in comparison with other scripture, you know that God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't repent like man repents. God doesn't go, oops. Why did I do that? But this is the best language they can use, they can come up with, to explain to us the pain that's striking God's heart. Ah, this may be a bad example, and we may have to edit it from the audio recording later, but I'm going to throw it out there. Um, a woman says, you know, I want to have a child. A woman says, I want to have another child. She's already experienced the pain of childbirth. She knows. She's seen the videos. She's seen the TLC shows. She knows what this pain is about. No, no one's tricked her. No one's like, tried to, oh, it's, it's a stork. And she, you know, no. She knows what this is about. I want to have a child. Now, why would she do that if she knows there's going to be all that pain? Because she knows that there's something good on the other side of that pain, and that goodness is still worth the pain of labor. So God didn't make a mistake, but he still has the emotional pain. He still has that moment where he realized the pangs of, of all of the sin, wicked that has become of mankind. And so the Lord makes a decision in verse 7. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Blot out is just the ancient equivalent to erasing. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. I am sorry that I made them. God makes a decision to wipe them out. Say humanity's hopeless. There are no churches, there are no good things happening. It's just evil all the time. So God makes a decision to wipe them out, wipe them out, all the animals, all the living things, all the people, all the families, all the tribes, all the cities. But Noah And verse 8 is the focus of the story. The focus is not the flood. The focus is not the wickedness. The focus is the exception. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
And then as you follow the story, you get the sense why Noah found favor. Noah found favor because he was a righteous man. If you look at verse uh, 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. In other words, while everyone else was constantly thinking evil, Noah, he walked with God. He had a relationship with God. He sought to please God. Now, this text isn't telling us that he's perfect when it says blameless, but in contrast with the wicked generation of his day, Noah was not at fault the way they were at fault. You couldn't blame Noah on, you couldn't blame verse 5 on Noah. He walked with God. He was a righteous man. He obeyed. Uh, Throughout the whole chapter, the author goes out of his way to let you know that Noah was obedient. Look at verse 22. Everything that God told him to do with the ark and the animals, Noah did it. He did all that God commanded him. In chapter 7, verse 5, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. In chapter 7, verse 9, two and two, male and female, went into the ark as God commanded Noah. So you get the sense that God issues a command, Noah does it. God says, jump, Noah says, how high? That's why he was righteous. Everyone else couldn't care less, right, what God thought or what God did. In fact, the more evil I do, eh, God will just protect me more than he protected Cain. Forget God. Trample all over his grace. But Noah wanted to live the way God wanted him to live. Noah was an obedient man. And so because of Noah, God institutes a rescue plan. God tells Noah to build an ark. God tells Noah the ark is going to hold animals so that when the flood is over, after I destroyed creation, now we can start creation all over again. You're the new Adam, Noah. You and your wife. You're going to start over again. That's why as soon as Noah gets off the ark, God gives him the same command that he gave Adam. Be fruitful and multiply. We're starting again. And so when he does that, he's choosing a man, an obedient man, a righteous man to save. And God makes a covenant with him. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. Noah walked with God, verse 10, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God continues to give him instructions on how to make the ark measurements, materials, instructions. And then verse 17, he says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every Living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up shall serve as food for you and them. Noah did this. He did all 
that God commanded him. Obviously, he's going to look like a crazy person building a big old boat when there weren't boats, talking about rain when there wasn't rain. Animals are coming into the ark in twos. It just looks like he's insane. What I want you to notice is that the text never says, and his wife was righteous, and his kids were righteous. In fact, one of his sons is a punk. He's the one that fathers the whole land of Canaan. And the whole land of Canaan gets cursed because of this guy, Ham. That's after the ark. But, but the text never tells us, but this family was holy. This family was righteous. No, Noah was righteous. And even though God was going to destroy the entire earth, he saved for himself a remnant of people. Not because that remnant was good, but because of the obedience of one man. And that remnant was saved because they were underneath that guy. And so when we look at the story, we see the Noah's prominence. The text is trying to show you how Noah is a specific kind of person and God saved the family, but it doesn't give us details on the family. It doesn't say the family obeyed. The family did all that God commanded. No, Noah obeyed. Noah did everything God commanded. When you get to chapter 7, and you look at verses uh, starting 17, it rained for 40 days, but Noah was saved with his family. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, And the ark floated on the surface of the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 feet deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. They all died. Verse 22, everything on the dry land and whose nostril was the breath of life died. I mean, you just see the, the, laying, the thick laying on of death, destruction, punishment, judgment. And then the contrast again says, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. God communicates to the world that he will not be taken advantage of. His grace doesn't mean do whatever you want and I'll just be biting my nails up in the stars, looking at you, hoping that you figure things out. No. There will come a time when wickedness reaches a level where I step in and I smash it. But he also wants to communicate something else. Look at what happens afterward. Chapter 8. You know, the water starts to subside after 150 days. The waters abate. He starts sending a raven, a dove, out of the ark to see if they're able to land. The dove comes back with an olive leaf. He figures out, okay, we can do this. And then he comes out and the first thing he does is he worships God. Chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal 
and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. You remember he took extras, just so you know. There were extras. It wasn't just two of these kinds of animals. There were extras of these kind of animals. Why? Well, for this, so that they could be sacrificed. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Now, let's stop there a second. Why does God find the sacrifice of innocent animals pleasing? Well, you have two options. It's one because he's kind of a sadistic being and just likes to see animals tortured. But nothing in Scripture points us toward that in any way whatsoever. What Scripture does point us to is what Noah, I think, gets. Even before Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all that, Noah gets something. When Adam and Eve sinned, they couldn't cover themselves with fig leaves. Why? Because their account has to be settled somehow. They're guilty, but they're still alive. Something else needs to die in their place. And so God made them skins to cover them. Only a sacrifice of something innocent can cover you so you can continue to walk with me. That's what God was communicating. Noah comes out of the ark, takes these animals, sacrifices them, before the Lord. And it's a pleasing aroma to God, not because he likes that animals are dead. It's a pleasing aroma to God because he goes, this guy gets it. This guy gets it. He can't just waltz in my presence and worship me because he has wickedness in his heart. Even though by contrast, he's a righteous man, he still is not perfect. And in order to walk with me, in order to worship me, in order to be with me, there has to be some kind of settling of accounts. So he worships and then God makes a promise. The Lord smelled the aroma And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God knows that man is going to continue to sin. And therefore, he has to make a promise. Because otherwise, it's going to be a flood every other generation, guys. (laughs) Because we're bad. But he makes a promise. And he ends up instituting the covenant with Noah. He puts the rainbow in the sky. A bow that looks like a warrior's weapon. Not to remind man, but also God says, I'll look at that bow. When, when, When the wrath rises up in me, I'll look at that bow and remember the promise that I made. To not flood the earth again. God responds to Noah's worship with a promise. Okay, so what's the recap of the story of Noah? I've not seen the movie, the recent one, so I can't draw any illustrations from there, but I heard it's not very good. But this is the story here. What are the primary elements of that story? Wicked world, wicked world, God judges that world, destroys them. But he saves for himself a remnant of people through the obedience of one man. One man was righteous. One man was obedient. And those that were underneath that man, those that belonged to that one obedient man, were saved. Now when you read that story and when you think of that story, as a believer, you have to see the foreshadowing of the greater story. You have to see the pre-picture of the gospel. 
in the grand story of mankind, there comes a time when God's limit is reached. And God steps in, rolls up his sleeves, and destroys all wickedness. Not with a flood, but this time with fire. But he saves for himself a remnant of people that belong to the one obedient man, the true second Adam. Those are saved who belong to Jesus Christ. You see, when we read this story, you're not Noah. I'm not Noah. It it would have been so awesome. I had to scrap this idea, you know. Father's Day, here's Noah, righteous man. He obeyed. Guys, let's obey, guys. And then we can lead our families. Wouldn't that be a good, that'd be good, right? And I'm not saying that's an illegitimate message. So if you're tuning in the radio and you hear a preacher do that, I mean, you know, don't, don't shoot Twitter hates and stuff. But, but listen, that's not the main point. The main point of the story is, so be like Noah and you won't get flooded. That's not the point. The point is that God's judgment will reach a point where he sends a flood. And he saves for himself a remnant. Not because that remnant is righteous. Not because that remnant of people, that group of people, it's not because they're holy. It's not because they're blameless. It's because they belong to the one who is obedient. The one who is blameless. No one was only righteous by comparison. Jesus was truly righteous. Jesus was truly perfect. And so we live in a corrupt world. We see our story here. This is just a, a pre-picture of our story. And I'm not sure if we're at the point where every person's intention is evil all the time. But man, we've got to be close. I've got friends that their favorite video game, you can, you can ride around the city in a car, steal from people, rob from people, solicit a prostitute, have your way with her in the car, and then the money that you paid her with, beat her over the head with a pipe and take that money back, and you get more points. Go to Target right now. It's there. It's probably on sale. There's various iterations of this video game. You can't walk through the mall in Schaumburg without seeing posters of underage girls in underwears in sexual position on their bed. A lingerie store for tweens. I mean, just click through cheerleading outfits, you know, 50 years ago, cheerleading outfits today. Bathing suits at the pool 50 years ago, bathing suits at today. What you see is not an increase in morality. What you see is a degradation. And we keep pushing out the fence. We keep pushing out the fence and allow more things. And for those of us who want to pull the fence in, we're prudes. We're hypocrites. Because they'll just point where you break the fence. I don't know if our our thoughts and our intentions are evil continually all the time. But more and more people are getting together. There is a movement of atheism where they question the existence of God. Now the new atheists who are calling themselves anti-theists because they don't think it's enough to believe that God doesn't exist. They want you to stop believing it because the belief in God is bad for the world. And so they're against, not just saying, no, I don't believe in that, but now you shouldn't believe in that. They're evangelizing now. The psalmist tells us it's a fool. says in his heart, there is no God. And guys, that's, that's our world today. 
But in this corrupt world, there's one man. Just like you're reading that story and you get to, you know, all this corruption, all this wickedness, and then it says, but Noah. Well, the grand story of the universe is all this corruption, all of this evil, animal sacrifices can't do it. That can't really cut it. An animal didn't commit sin. A man committed sin. Man has to pay that price. So no matter how many animals you, you sacrifice, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't fix it. No king was perfect. No prophet was perfect. No priest was perfect. Nobody could ever get us into right relationship with God. But Jesus, the one true obedient man, the one true righteous man, Noah had to sacrifice, but Jesus was the sacrifice. And that's the only way our worship can be pleasing to God. And so there comes a time when God reigns his judgment. Nobody talked about this more than Jesus. Nobody talked about it more than Jesus. Remember when he said that one man builds his house on the sand, the other man builds his house on the rock, and then the storm comes? That storm is not you lost your job. That storm is not, you know, hard times with your kids. That storm is God's judgment. And only one house stands. The stand house that's built on the rock, the rock is Jesus Christ. The remnant that belonged to Jesus, the one obedient man, they're saved. So we can be under Christ's protection from judgment. And not only that, but on the other side of judgment to come out of that ark and start creation anew. God is going to make all the heavens and the earth new and start again without the presence of sin. And that's done through Jesus Christ. You remember Matthew 24? We were there recently. Matthew 24, Jesus said, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, God is, Jesus is saying, Remember the story of Noah? Here's my story, and there's a parallel. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus said, there's a new ark, a new Noah, and it's me. A judgment is coming, and if you want out, join me. Come in. The door is open. You don't have to sacrifice yourself. You don't have to sacrifice your family. You don't have to pay a bunch of money. You just have to know that this is the ark. You can build your own, but this is the only one that's going to work. You can build your house on any kind of sand you want, but there's only one rock. So when those smashing waves of the new judgment come, you're brought through to the other side. Because you stand on the solid rock that is Jesus Christ. God will judge the world, but he's saving for himself a remnant through the obedience of the perfect man, Jesus Christ. I don't know every single person that's in here today. Um, and this is typically a kind of message you would bring to an audience where you don't know anybody and you just say, oh, there may be a bunch of unbelievers. I, I don't know. Maybe some of you don't know if you've made that kind of commitment that Steve was talking about here. Or maybe you know someone who hasn't made that commitment and you're like, well, I'm waiting for the right time. Rain came out of nowhere. We may not have time. So if you don't know the Lord... I want you to be a part of that remnant. If you have questions about it, please come ask me um, or any one of the guys that were up here today, anyone here on the worship team, come ask us. We want to talk to you about 
that coming judgment and the way to be a part of that remnant. If you know people in your life that are eating, drinking, marrying, having families, maybe they're not the worst people in the world, but they don't, they, they're not ready. We've got to reach out to them. We've got to pray for them and communicate to them that there's a way through that judgment in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we confess that uh, we are often um, very calloused toward the sinfulness of this world. And when we read Genesis, we're reminded of how quickly and exponentially things get bad. And Lord, we look at ourselves and we realize we are not perfect. And we need a sacrifice to worship you. We need some substitutionary sacrifice to be able to get on that ark and be saved from judgment. And we thank you that you've provided that in Jesus Christ. That you've provided a sacrifice that is unquestionable. You provide a sacrifice that is, uh, there's no comparison. We can be fully assured of safety, of refuge inside the rock that is Jesus Christ. Those of us in here maybe who haven't taken that step, I pray that we would. I pray that we would. And Lord, we pray for those of, in our lives that don't know you. God, may, help, us to, help us to communicate to them this reality. As they distract themselves with drink and food and parties and get-togethers, reunions, families, marriages, kids. Lord, help us to help them focus on the bigger picture. What's after all that? Help us to introduce them to the one obedient man, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we ask you for it. Amen.